Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Alex Newport, and if you're not familiar with him, Alex is a producer and engineer who has worked with a ton of amazing acts, including At The Drive-In, The Mars Volta, Dallas Green, aka City and Color. He's also worked with Death Cab for Cutie, Frank Turner, Block Party, and so many more. And in this episode, we get into some awesome stories about Alex working with these artists. But not only that, we also chat about the idea of embracing imperfection and how to create records that sound so good and so energetic that there's a vibe that transcends any need for perfection in a record. Sometimes having imperfect moments is actually what makes a record sound awesome. And if you listen to some of those early records that Alex made, especially when you look at things like At The Drive-In, there are parts of those records where by today's standards, they might not sound perfect, but yet there is this energy and excitement that just keeps you wanting to listen to them over and over and over again. And I think once you listen to how Alex approaches production and how he approaches recording artists, I think it's all going to make sense why he's able to capture these records that sound so good and that keep you captivated, regardless of if they're perfect or not. And by all means, when I'm saying that, I'm not implying that Alex's records sound bad at all. I love the sound of his records. But by today's standards, you know, they might not be perfectly locked in time or perfectly in tune vocals or whatever, you know what I mean? But that kind of stuff doesn't matter with Alex's records. And I think that's one of the reasons why his records are so good. And yeah, I'm just really excited for you to start learning more about his process and get some really cool insight into what he does to make his records sound the way that they do. So with that said, let's just jump right into this episode because I know you're going to love it. Alex Newport, thank you so much for being on the Master Euromix podcast. How's it going, man? Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, Mike. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your work, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into all the awesome stuff in production that you're working on? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a Brit and I, I moved to... North America in the 90s. But I, um, I was a musician in a sort of grunge band in the early 90s. And um, I think back at, at that time, especially, you know, I grew up in a fairly small town in England. And in that time, you know, 1989, 1990, there really were not very many people that knew how to sort of record guitar-heavy bands at all, you know. And so, you know, we worked with a couple of people who were, who were really great. I mean, they, you know, I think their intentions were great, but they just maybe didn't have the, the right experience. But for me, it was sort of like the minute that we went into the studio and I saw, you know, the tape machine, the big console and the whole thing, and I was sort of like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is incredible. And I never, I, I liked playing shows with the band, but I never really liked the touring aspect of it. So for, you know, I was always sort of a studio rat messing around with pedals and sounds. And so I got into the studio side of it really, really quickly. And, um, but of course I had no idea what I was doing. So there was, there was quite a large, 
period of me sort of trying to figure stuff out and and that band worked with a couple of different producers who were who were really excellent and sort of took me under their wing and showed me the ropes and how to work a console and all that sort of stuff um and then at some point you know i got to the i got to the point where i was a little bit more confident with what i was doing mm -hmm. i think i you know from from those guys that i worked with it was sort of like okay i like when they do this and this that works really well and i, and I really like that and then this and this and this that they're doing i completely disagree with and it doesn't sound <laughs> good and that's not what i want to do and so you know sort of taking bits and pieces from whatever they were doing that worked and then sort of figuring the rest out by myself you know but i mean to me, it's it, it, that's a never-ending process, and and I think that's why I still enjoy doing it. You know, I think like Paul McCartney said, if I ever wrote the perfect song, I would just stop because what would be the point? It's always that that idea of like, you know, okay, next record, I'm going to try something different and maybe come up with something I haven't come up with before, which is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And it, it reminds me a lot of myself, too, as far as getting started, because a lot of my guests that I've also had on the podcast, too, where we all shared that same story of like, we went into the studio as, as musicians, we thought we were going to get some sort of result out of the speakers. And then for whatever reason, that engineer couldn't do it. And then it's like, I wonder if I could do it, you know, like you become interested in the tech. And yeah, you, you don't know anything at that point early on, but you're just fascinated with the equipment and you have this vision of like, I want it to sound like this. How do we make it happen? Um, yeah. And I think that that's a really interesting, uh, exciting stage to be in because, yeah, that that never-ending pursuit of knowledge, like that's where it all starts. It's just like pushing yourself yeah, to just keep going, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So as far as, um, as far as learning how to do this stuff, you had mentioned that you had worked with a lot of artists and, or sorry, you'd worked with a lot of different producers with your band. And so you were able to kind of observe them. But as far as like, going 100% into the studio, like, did you ever have any sort of formal training or was it just from, like, kind of shadowing other people while working on your own music? Well, there, there literally wasn't any formal training available. You know, I mean, back in those days, you know, these days you can do so much online. There's recording schools that are very famous and very expensive, no doubt. But that literally didn't exist. You know, you... Mm -hmm. You either like worked with a producer as an assistant or a, an engineer's assistant, or you opened your own studio and started figuring it out. You know, there, there was no formal training available, but because, you know, I wasn't in London, I was in a small town. So it wasn't like there was a studio in town, but the, you know, they didn't have too much going on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for quite a while, I worked as a producer which was more, uh, the focus was more on songwriting and arrangements and general vibe stuff and really not engineering because I didn't really know how to. I didn't know how to work tape machines, not, not uh, to the level that's necessary anyway. So mm -hmm. I would work with engineers. But, you know, then the issue is that either the engineers maybe didn't grow up with the same sort of music that I did or... You know, musical stuff is it's so hard to translate, right? When you you know, like when you say, "Oh, something should be punchier," or something should be warmer, or it's like that means a million different things to different people. So it, it came 
to a point for me where I sort of realized I'm going to need to learn how to do this myself. The, even if I can translate this to other people, it takes so long that something's lost in the, in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that time, I'd moved to the States and I was living in San Francisco. And uh, I had a job as house engineer at Tiny Telephone, which is uh, John Van der Slice's studio. And John is incredible, and our studio is incredible, all analog. And, um, you know, so I was just sort of the house engineer there. I wasn't the producer. I had no choice or control of who came in. And it was, it was really cool, though, because, you know, one day you'd have an indie rock band. The next day you'd have this sort of jazz band. There was a lot of guys from Google that would come in with their weird acid jazz, you know. <laughs> and I'd be like, well... I've never mic'd a trumpet before. I have no idea how to do it. So I'm going to sort of guess, you know. And I would do it and go, well, that doesn't work. <laughs> how, about, how about this? Okay, yeah, now that sounds good. Now I've got it, you know. So yeah. that, was like, that was a fantastic ex- experience to, you know, to record everything from metal to country music to jazz, electronic. And, and really get a grasp on like all those different instruments and different sounds and how to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting, getting really good with the tape machine, tape editing, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, but you know, then I sort of reached a point where I was like, okay, I feel a lot more confident on the engineering, recording, mixing side. Now I'm going to go back to producing and bring that, the engineering side with me as well. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you definitely learn a lot from working in different styles of music. And it was one of the things that when I was looking at your discography that kind of struck me that you had a lot of diversity in there as far as the the styles of artists that you've worked with. And actually, I found an old article with you from a long time ago where you were talking about how you don't typically like to work on the same sort of records all the time. And I think the example you gave in in that article was that after you'd worked with the Mars Volta, you had a lot of Mars Volta sound-alike bands coming to you. Yeah, totally. It's it's, it's a huge... Problem, and I mean, you know, I listen to tons and tons of different music. You know, I, there isn't a genre that I specifically stay within, and I get really bored if I'm if I'm just doing the same sort of stuff over and over. And yeah, I mean, when you know, whenever you work with with an artist and have some level of success, that is going to bring a lot of other artists that are of a very similar nature. <laughs> and, you know. Those two records with City and Color, I mean, it's for the next two years, the only phone calls I got was like a guy with tattoos and acoustic guitar. (laughs) And it was like, uh, you know, I want to be constantly evolving. I want to be always working on new stuff. And, and, you know, and, you know, I love working with City and Color, but what I don't want to do is do another project that sounds exactly like City and Color, you know, and I would, I would tell those people, like, if you want me to make it sound like City and Cully, I'm the wrong person. You know, like, what, what I want to do is make it sound like you and bring out what you do and not just copy some other record that I've done. It's, it's completely pointless. So, um, so it's, it's been somewhat intentional and somewhat random that I work with a lot of different artists' styles. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like, when a lot of people, when they first get started in this industry, they, they kind of take on whatever projects they can get just to keep busy. And it's almost like so many of them 
are taking on all these different projects. They're not really maybe they maybe they have a certain thing that they want to focus on, but they're just you know trying to just pay the bills or whatever. And they're hoping for like a big break. And then finally, when they get that break, they can often become pigeonholed and known as like the person who does X really well. Yeah, that is that is totally my my dread and always has been because I have you know friends that are producers that that did that worked with an artist that was successful then worked with lots of other artists that sounded virtually identical and had some success with them. But, you know, music is, uh, music industry is very fickle. Music fans, tastes change very quickly. And so if you're sort of pigeonholed with this specific genre or this certain style of music, you stand a good chance of uh, becoming past it very quickly and, and, therefore not working at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because like some people will say, oh, you should you should niche down and like focus on one sound and, you know, become known for it. And if you have lots of people coming to you for a specific sound, then, you know, obviously you're going to keep busy. You're going to keep keep working. Um, but I'm curious to know, like with the fact that you wanted so much more diversity and that you would shoot down these artists that, you know, were coming to you for a specific sound, like an old record. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like not niching down either helped your career or slowed it down? Like how, how, how would you look at that? Well, both. I mean, you know, there's, I turned down a, a lot of projects if I don't feel it's the right fit, you know, and then could be six months down the road when I go, ah, I have a lot of bills to pay. <laughs> um, you know, kind of wish I hadn't turned down all that stuff, but, but at the same time, I think, you know, well, I had to, it wouldn't be fair to the artist to take it on if I'm not fully feeling it, if I don't feel I'm the right person, it wouldn't be fair to me to do it, you know. So, um, you know, I I try to alter my, my situation a little bit to be a little bit more frugal and to be able to, to make that work, you know. I mean, uh, I, I know there's lots of producers that, that make a lot more money than I do, and you know, and that's cool. Um, but I'm much happier with my resume as it as it stands. Absolutely, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you have to than they are than they are with theirs. Let's put it that way. For sure. I mean, you have to enjoy what you're doing. If you're just kind of like slogging through it, then you're not going to want to stick around. I didn't get into it for the money. I'd be, you know, you'd be a, an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it's not. There, there either is no money or there is some money, but it's unreliable. So it's, you really have to be doing it for the love of it, you know? And if you can, you know, my thing is I just want to pay my bills, you know? That's all I really care about. I don't really, you know, I don't really care about me being a millionaire. I just want to pay my bills and uh, I continue to, to do what I do. So I'm very, very fortunate and I know it and I'm very grateful that I'm able to do that over 25 years absolutely is there any sort of style of music that you haven't worked on yet that you would really like to i you know i listen to a lot of hip-hop a lot of it's it's mostly old school hip-hop i i don't really dig the modern hip-hop too much these days um but you know but i do still enjoy it and you know somebody asked me the other day you know why don't you do hip-hop when you always listen to hip-hop why don't you do a hip-hop record you know, and it's it's sort of like, well, you know, as much as I've tried to deliberately diversify and listen to a lot of different music and work on a lot of different music, 
you know, I just don't have a name whatsoever in that genre. And I, you know, and I think any any hip hop artist could like go on my website and be like, well, all this stuff sounds great, but there's nothing that's relevant here to me. And I would have to say, you're quite right. And the the fact that I listen to Eric B and Rakim on a daily basis makes no difference in this <laughs> case. You know, I just don't have anything to prove to you that I could do it, you know? Yeah. So, um, so hip hop remains something that, you know, what I try to do is bring some of those production elements into some of the music that I work on, you know? So, okay, we're not making hip hop records, but there's no reason why we can't consider a lot of those production elements and use them. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And and I think that that's probably, uh, that is probably a good way to, maybe transition to it, you know, like if, if people start to hear those elements in the styles of music that you work on, then maybe they'll, they're more willing to take a chance with, uh, you know, maybe letting you work on something that you're not as well known for. Right. Like, but even, even without that, like I'm quite happy, you know, at, at that stage to be, you know, it's okay. I don't need to be a hip hop producer as much as I love hip hop. I don't need to be a hip hop producer. Fair. We can, we can take some of those elements and use them in a new way with what we're doing, which is not hip hop at all. You know, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I do that all the time. I, I really love records with a lot of bass drum and a lot of heavy bass and a lot of 50 Hertz. You know, that's, that's my hip hop influence is that like big low end and, and a groove in the music, you know? So it's, it's not hip hop, but it's, it's directly influenced by that that vibe. Of course, yeah. Well, that, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how you also don't want to make records that all sound the same too. So like, you know, by yeah. by working on, by incorporating different uh, production elements from different styles, like you're, you're helping to keep, you know, rock music or whatever you're working on kind of interesting and, and unique sounding. So, you know, it, that, that in itself is, is helping to diversify the, the styles of artists that you're working with and, and just make the type, type type of music that you're working on more exciting in general. You know, like sometimes I have to be careful with it, you know, cause I might, you know, I might discover some sort of technique or something that I hear on a, on a hip hop record or, or any other record, um, you know, and so I'll be like, Oh, this is brilliant and try to incorporate that, you know, but like fairly early on have the realization that it's not appropriate for the song, you know? So then you sort of reach that stage where you're like, it sounds so good and I'm really glad that I was able to achieve it. But now I'm going to have to backtrack and admit that, <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to force this technique in and I just need to save it for some other time, you know? And that could be five years from now, or, you know? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, at least at least knowing how to do it is is the the big part of it and then finding the right moment for it is always uh right, exactly you know you can figure out all those things and file them away and you know the back of your mind and then at some point okay now this is the perfect spot to try that mm-hmm. yeah it's great to be like continuously learning and not just like working specifically on a specific project you know i, I feel like that's one thing a lot of people especially early on in, in like, you know, the home studio market, especially will do is that they only work on their music and it's like, they don't really, they, they're so focused on one specific song that they're not willing to like experiment and like try a whole bunch of different things and learn. So that like when, when the opportunity comes later on for like a specific technique that would achieve a certain sound, like 
you know, they, they, they don't have the skill there, you know, they haven't practiced their, their skills enough. Um, yeah. Going back to, um, you were talking about how when you first got started in the studio world, you were mainly focusing on, pro- on production and, and being a producer and, and using that to get into the studio, but also learning it, uh, using it to, uh, learn from other engineers. I'm curious to know when it comes to producing records, how involved do you like to get in the production process? Because I feel like producer is one of those words that these days it gets thrown around in so many different ways. It means so many different things. So what do you see as the role of a producer? It always has. I mean, there's no, there really is not much of a definition for it, right? Or there's no, you don't get like a certificate or a, you know, <laughs> there's no credentials. It's just like, you know, people wake up one day and go, I'm a producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it be, I mean, it can be anything from writing a beat all the way to arranging and doing string parts and A&R and, you know, it's whatever. So I think, you know, every, every producer, you take it upon yourself to do what you think is the right set of, of circumstances and situations. Mm-hmm. So for you, like, do you, do you like to get involved in like the songwriting process or like, how do you see your, your role? Like what's the stuff that you enjoy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in the, the punk rock era, you know, and it was very much a, you know, one of my favorite bands was Fugazi and it was this whole sort of DIY thing, you know. So originally my concept was that, you know, bands don't need to be told what to do. They don't need, you know, they know what they want. And I quickly realized that that's just not true at all. And and from my own experience, I mean, when I... Um, our record label wanted us to work with a producer and I was dead against it. I didn't see the point, you know, it was sort of like, we know what our sound is. We just need a good engineer. We don't need help with songs. And, you know, we were sort of convinced to try it out. And, you know, I very quickly realized the benefit of working with somebody that's an objective opinion, because, you know, when you're, when you're working on your own material, it's, Virtually impossible to be objective. Very, very difficult. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I, to me, I, you know, I, every artist is different, right? So somebody, somebody like Dallas Green might need less input on the songwriting than the next artist, you know, whereas maybe with, with City and Color, it was more about getting the right vibe and what's the, we have the song set. What's the instrumentation that's going to work on this? Mm-hmm. Should we make this, you know, a little bit more lo-fi and weird and out there, or should this one be more vocal orientated or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, other artists that I work with, uh, you know, they would often send me a chorus or a, you know a verse and a chorus and say, "Well, I've got this. I've got these two parts, and I don't know how to finish it." You know, so, okay, cool. Let's sit down. Let's figure out what it needs and we'll, we'll put the song together. Or, you know, you have a song that's fantastic, but it's completely in the wrong key and the vocals don't sound good. So let's look at the key here. Or the song is almost great, but the bridge just seems to lose my attention. So maybe we can try something. It could be, you know, sometimes I get involved with helping people with lyrics if need be. Um, it's it's really different every single time. Mm-hmm. I like that though. It, I mean, it would definitely 
keep you sharp in terms of different skills. And, you know, you can, uh, again, I guess it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's diversifying your skills so that you're not just doing the same thing over and over again too. Right? Yeah, totally. But you know, you have to take each artist and each song individually. And, you know, there's some cases where, um, you know, I, I work with, with artists where I feel that they sound so good that what I need to do is stay out of the way, you know, like, um, I'm at least smart enough to realize when something's awesome and I need to not screw it up, you know? So in that case, that's more of creating an environment for them where they don't feel held back by anything and they can create fully. And, you know, and I stay just on the peripheral vision of things, you know, and if something's not working, you know, I can bring that up, but. Other other songs or you know other artists or songs could be way more involved than that and built up completely from scratch. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You had mentioned uh, you've mentioned City and Color a bunch of times, and, and you were talking about how with a project like that, it's mainly about capturing the vibe and the essence of the tracks. And um, that was something that I was curious to ask you about as well. Like you know, I, I love those records, and to me, the thing that I really love about them is that they they have a lot of intimacy to them. Like they, they're, they're very intimate sounding mixes, but they're also very ambient mixes. Like you feel like you're kind of in like a barn watching the band play in front of you kind of thing. Like that, at least that's, that's kind of how I envision it. Um, and I think that when it comes to intimacy and mixes, a lot of people have this misconception that intimacy equals dry and that like everything needs to be super dry sounding in, in your face. Um, but I, you know, I think the City and Color records are a great example of how that's not the case. So I'm curious to know when it comes to approaching ambience in your mixes and and trying to achieve an intimate sound, like what is your thought process behind that? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, for me, I think it's about having contrasts. So you've maybe got certain elements that are very forward in the mix, the you know the important ones that need to feel very very. Uh, upfront and intimate and then maybe you've got other elements that can be much more in the background more more ambient um but there's also some techniques that i think are very interesting for for creating that ambience without creating too much of a wash or losing that intimacy so you know, like with, with City and Color, I felt like, well, I want to have a reverb on the vocal to sort of give it that depth and to, and to sort of bring out the emotion in the voice. But I don't want to cloud his vocals completely in reverb. So on those records, I used a lot of reverbs and echoes that are more bandwidth limited, like the Roland Space Echo or Spring reverbs that have quite a small sound to them. You know, they're not some huge cascading reverb that has, you know, tons of frequencies in it. I try to pick the sounds that are much more limited and smaller uh, sounding by themselves so that they don't cloud the, the mix completely. Um, but, but, you know, I think that's, you could probably do that with almost any reverb, but just sort of EQing it and taking a lot of the lows and the highs off it so you, you put it in a smaller framework. Um, but also pre-delay on reverbs is is really great for that. So if you set a little pre-delay, it will it will set it away from the vocal. So you'll you know you hear the vocal first, 
And then a split second later, you'll hear the reverb. But because of that little gap, that pre-delay, it manages to separate the two. So, okay, we've actually got a fair amount of reverb here, but because of that separation, it doesn't feel like it's clouding the, re- the, the vocal too much. That makes sense. It's it's not like a, a tail at that point or like an extension of the word. It's just kind of like you hear it after the fact. And it, it yeah, that yeah. makes sense. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. And that, that kind of ties me to another question that I was curious about. It's just as far as how you use delay in your mixes, too, because that, that was one other thing I noticed with a lot of your tracks, too, is that you you do a really great job of using delay in your mixes to add character and to add depth to your tracks. But yeah, that that delay doesn't interfere with other elements in the mix or it doesn't step on the toes of anything else. And I'm guessing that's just mainly because of what you just said there, where it's like you're you're kind of EQing it out or finding kind of bandwidth limited styles of of delay, right? Yeah, right. That's I think that's why, you know, the the tape echoes and even, you know, guitar delay pedals always sound so much cooler to me than than the stuff I have in the racks or the plugins, you know, because they are smaller sounding, weirder sounding, maybe more mid-range focused, you know? So they have a lot more character and you can get them in the mix without clouding up all the other instruments, you know? But it's, you know, stuff like delay and reverb to me, well, maybe not City in Color, but City in Color has a, a lot of space in his song, slower tempo, so there's more room for that sort of ambience. In some of the projects I work with, maybe... There's more going on. There's there's not so much room for that sort of ambience. But what I love to do is is sort of sneak a little bit, bit of that in delays or reverbs, and I sort of get it to the point in the mix where you you don't really hear it, but you feel it. And I think it's the it's the sort of thing that if you if you took it out, there would be a big difference. But if you but you don't actually really hear. You, you're not like, oh yeah, there's a delay, or yeah, there's a reverb. It's much more subtle. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you generally prefer delay over reverb, or reverb over delay? Does it matter? It, it really depends. I think on the on the song. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of each, but you know, it it really depends on the on the song. Yeah. But you know, if if I do reach for reverb again, usually it's it's something, you know, I try to, as great as all the lexicon stuff or, or you know, all the fancy plugins that, like, they often just sound too good to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I usually reach for something that's a, a bit more character in it. Yeah. Do you ever use, like, sidechain compression or anything like that on your EQs or reverbs to get them out of the way of the vocal even more? Um, I'm not sure that I've tried that, so maybe I maybe I'll uh, I'll throw that on my my notes of things to try. I, I you know you, it's my guess is it probably might sound similar to using a, a lot of pre delay. Yeah, I mean the, the I guess the concept behind it is just to have it tuck out tuck out when the vocal or whatever element or whatever instrument that that effect is on, um, you know, have it kind of go lower when when it's being played, and then you hear the tail when it's when it's done, right? So. Um, yeah. Yeah, that could be that could be that could be cool. I I will definitely. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I'm I'm curious to know, like obviously, like we've just talked about like reverb and, and delay and stuff like that in your mixes, but I, I'm curious to know, like generally, when you're starting mixes, it seems like you're very methodical about you know how you like to place things in the mix. So when it comes to starting a mix, 
what's your what's your typical mindset or like do you have a typical approach for how you start or what you do first that kind of thing um typically you know i well typically i just sort of throw everything up and get a and get a feel for for what's going on and um you know for me it's 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 usually about sort of clearing space for the vocal so anything that's sort of in the same range as the the vocal the same register I mean, ho- hopefully that's already been addressed on the recording side, but n- you know, not always. Um, so for me, it's sort of like, okay, this guitar or this synth is it's playing in a very similar range. So what I need to do is, is maybe make a bit more room for the vocal there and EQ it appropriately and get that out of the, the way of the, the vocals. So once I've sort of got that roughed in, then then typically the first thing I do is go to the drums because the drums for me is that's sort of the backbone of, of everything. And if you, if you have the drums sounding good, a lot of the other stuff falls into, into place. I, you could, I think you could say the same about the vocals too. So it's mostly I'm sort of focused on the rhythm. That's, you know, that's how you connect with people on, on a rhythmic level. That's what makes them feel. And then the vocal is what makes them feel emotionally, right? They connect hopefully with the, the lyrics and the vocal. Mm-hmm. And, and all the other stuff is is going to be supporting that. For sure. Though I like that approach because, you know, you often hear people talk about you know, they maybe just start with only the drums or only the vocal. But I think when you do that, you definitely lose perspective of what else is happening in the mix. And Yeah, you can't, you can't possibly start with any solo instrument. Or, or or ever. I mean, I like I really avoid soloing things. It's I think soloing things is is useful. Maybe if you think you hear something weird and you want to isolate it, just you know. But I spent years, you know, putting things in solo and EQing it, getting it perfect, and then you take it out of solo and it doesn't work. It sounds terrible in the mix. Mm-hmm. So I just had to force myself. You know, do not do that. You, you want to EQ or compress everything in place in the mix. And solo should just be your very occasional just to check for something weird going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people just lean on solo because it, it allows them to hear things easier. But yeah, to your point, like it's all about hearing it in the context of the mix. So it almost sounds like what you're doing is, because I think another reason why people use solo too is that they they're searching for problems. You know, they, they don't know where to, where the problem actually exists. So they're just kind of like scooping out a whole bunch of shit, trying to find what, what actually fixes the problem. And maybe in the process of doing that, they go too far sometimes, but, but yeah. it sounds, it sounds like kind of your approach is like throw it up, get the level balance of like the vocal and the, and the drums and find that kind of that element there. And then you're listening to it as a whole to figure out, okay, well, you're prioritizing certain instruments and then based on that, whatever that priority is, like you're cutting things around it. Right. I, you know, for me, it's like, I'm looking for emotional content, not technical stuff. You know, I'm looking for some, is, is this grabbing people and getting the message across in the way that we want it to, you know, the, I had this big conversation, somebody the other with somebody the other day about um, resonances and they were asking me about resonances in tracks or in kick drums. And they were talking about how they, you know, they put these like very fine notch filters on a kick drum and, you know, sort of notch out these resonances. And there's, 
there's one at 200 so that means there's also one at 400 so there's also one at 800 and they've got all this series of notches you know and i was just thinking i would just be more worried about whether the song is emotionally grabbing people i mean there's the whole audio world is filled with all these resonances and you know like focusing on stuff like that is I just lose interest really quickly and you know and the few times I have sort of messed around with that as an experiment I you know I didn't feel like ultimately actually sounded any better you could say that the resonances were reduced but I I just sort of felt like I've just spent an hour doing something it didn't really sound any better and especially once it was put in the mix with everything Mm -hmm. yeah it's so easy to get caught in the technically right way to do things, I guess, or, or like, you know, whatever technically sounds best. But yeah, to your point, it's like at the end of the day, who cares? Is the song good? That's all that matters. You know, people are, people can easily look past resonances when they hear a good song. Well, you know, one, one of the records that I'm most famous for being involved with, which is that, you know, I still get calls to this day is the after drive-in record. But that record, you know, <laughs> When people bring it up, I always appreciate it, but it's not one of the best sounding records I've done. I mean, it was done very, very quickly. The entire album recorded and mixed in three days straight. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'm sure that that record is full of resonances and, <laughs> you know, maybe is not mixed quite the way I would want it to be. But the thing is, that record really resonates with people. There's something in that record where emotionally that really grabs people and they love it, you know, and, yeah. you know, I'll sort of start saying, well, I don't know if that's my, and they say, oh no, it's fantastic. I love that record. <laughs> I guess it's one of those records that if you ever tried to like re-record that and make it technically perfect, it would just ruin the magic of it, you know? It, it absolutely would. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, although I sort of have that thing, but, you know, I, I wish we'd had a bit more time for that record, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been so good. And I, you know, I do, I do think that the, the records that I've worked on that sound the best are usually the ones that are done fairly quickly. Three days to do 10 songs is a bit much, and I, I probably <laughs> wouldn't do that these days. But, you know, there's, I've spent six to nine months on records before, and listen back to them and can't say that they sound any better. In fact, they they probably don't sound as good as the records that were done in two to three weeks. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I think because what happens, and I see it all the time, and, and again, we were talking about what's the role of a producer. One of my roles is to stop people second-guessing everything and ruining something good that they already have. So if you you know if you have too much time in the studio, and it's certainly the case for people, you know, recording at home, you technically have unlimited time, right? So it's so easy to get something good and then sit there and mess with it and make it much worse. And, you know, we're all guilty of it and I do it myself and I have to, you know, I have to pull back and stop myself like, no, it's good. Just leave it. Make a decision, commit to it. It sounds great. Move on. Mm-hmm. So with that at the driving record, like I, I absolutely love, I love the records that you did with them. And to me, the thing with that band is that, yeah, I can look past the 
technical perfection of those records because like they're just so exciting. The songs are intense. Like there, there's like this this energy to them that is the thing that really captivates me. And that and that's right. And that's what that's what we're looking for in music. I mean, that's you know all my favorite records from all the Motown stuff, which is huge technical imperfections to, you know, the Stooges' raw power. It's one of the worst recorded records in the world, <laughs> but still one of my favorites. And, you know, at, at some point in the 2000s, they did remix that Stooges record and they made it much better and added more low end to it and more clarity. And it sucks. <laughs> you know, no one liked it because it just lost all that excitement and rawness that was in it. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, for me, it's a, you're just sort of trying to walk that line, right? Where you've got that excitement, you, you know, you've got the, the off the cuff confidence in the, in the music that connects with people. But it also hopefully sounds good enough where you can play it loud. It sounds great. You can play it quiet. It sounds great. It sounds great on headphones. You know, there's, you, you've got a level of technical proficiency where, the overall sound is good no matter what, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, at the end of the day, as long as that energy is there, I think that is the biggest thing. You know, if, can you hear things decent, clear, decently clear enough? And and is the energy there? Does do people resonate with the message of the song? I think if people have that, then they're going to resonate. Uh, with I it. think you know, modern recording, and you know, because of the advent of the the DAW, it's allowed us to to really sit there and literally make things perfect. And I think it's a huge mistake, a huge trap that people are falling into with that where I just don't think that that's what people who listen to music are looking for. That's, you know, the, the rock and roll, pop music, it's not perfect and, and shouldn't be. And when it's made perfect, it doesn't work. It's, you know, it's, it's all those little elements of imperfections and character that people connect with. So when we when we completely destroy any remnant of character, we really lose something. Absolutely. So, you know, sometimes when I work with people, they make a mistake and I go, that's fantastic. We're keeping that. And they'll say, well, it's a little bit out, you know, and I'm like, it's not out. It's just a slight imperfection. If, if somebody plays a wrong note, yes, okay, we need to fix that. But... Uh, or if someone comes in, you know, a beat too late, yes, we, maybe we need to fix that. Or, you know, maybe we need to write the song around that. Maybe that's how it needs to sound because that actually sounds cooler. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so there's sometimes at one point somebody was sort of arguing with me, like, well, like, you know, you, well, you need to go and fix that, you know. And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> and they're like, that's your job. You, you're a producer. You're supposed to make everything perfect, you know. And I was like, dead wrong is my job is to make the perfect vibe to make everything like feel emotionally emotionally perfect if you want yes but technically perfect no absolutely not yeah absolutely and and i think what we're talking about here isn't like you know, I, I think that these days there's a lot of people who understand that the technology is there to make everything perfect so there are some musicians that play into that and uh, like they just don't even try to be good and they're just like yeah you'll fix it you'll make it sound better yeah i'm a shitty singer like yeah you'll just tune my vocals or whatever but that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about people that are like still delivering good performances and like a little imperfection here and there 
is just adding some sort of character to the voice. It's, it's adding something exciting. It's not it, it it's not them just like like it doesn't matter if it's if it's perfect or not. Like the 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 energy is still there at the end of the day, right? Right, exactly. You know, usually in in that case, you know, like I'll put on OK Computer or I'll put on Nevermind and I'll say, you know, like this, I can point out numerous so-called, you know, quote-unquote mistakes on those records. I mean, Nevermind, the vocals are flat almost the entire way through the record. You know, from a technical standpoint, it's... From a technical standpoint, you could argue that those vocals are not correct. But the way that that record connected with millions of people and still sounds great to this day, to me, sort of proves that's not how people listen to records. It's maybe the vocals are technically imperfect, but the sound of his voice, the way he delivers it, really connects with people. And that's what we're looking for. Absolutely. So going back to the at the driving stuff, like with that band, to me, like they, again, they're it's the energy of that band that is what makes them appealing, at least to me. Like that, that's what I really resonate with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, great, great songs and a unique sound, and and above all, delivered with that intense energy that not many bands have that level of of energy, you know. And I and I saw them play shows in front of thousands of people at big festivals. And I saw them play shows in front of literally two people. Bef- before we recorded that record, they came out to LA and there was, there was two people in the audience. And the show was exactly the same. Same amount of energy, <laughs> intensity, no matter what. That's, that's just what they did. Yeah. So when you recorded them, I'm assuming it was all live off the floor to get that energy then, right? Yep. Specifically, yeah, deliberately. Yeah. But, you know, with... <laughs> with a lot of times with artists, I feel when they get in the studio, you know, there's, you know, the, you, you get that sort of studio environment, right? And you're, you know, like, okay, I'm going to sit down so I can play guitar and make sure I hit every, you know, and a, and a lot of times with artists, I'll say, right, I'm taking away all the chairs, you know, you're going to rock because <laughs> that's, again, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for technical perfection. With, with At the drive-in, I think was the only case in probably 25 years of working with artists when I've said you have to stop jumping around so much <laughs> because, you know, they would, like Omar would hit a chord and then he'd leap in the air and, you know, you could hear the whole chord bend out of tune and be, you know, <laughs> and I'd be like, couldn't you sort of jump just like a few inches instead of 12 or, or 18 inches, you know, <laughs> it's just calm it down a little bit. So at least the guitars don't sound that horrible. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's, a, it's a good problem to have, you know, I think at one point I did make him sit down. I made it like <laughs> got a chairman and said, like, you are going to sit through this entire song. <laughs> that's amazing. He was, you can imagine he was still in the chair, sort of like jumping up and down on the, still seated, you know, <laughs> But I, you know, I absolutely love that about them, that passion, that intensity that, you know, uh, that was, was very integral to the band. Mars Volta too had a, had a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Mars Volta may be a bit more technical uh, orientated, but still, they did still deliver with that same energy. 
Yeah. Well, every now and then you're going to find that band that does have that super exciting live show. And the last thing you want to do is just like take away that energy in the studio and it's just like be like, OK, now we're time to record. We're not we're not going to put in that same. It's not live. You know what I mean? Like I remember talking with uh, Garth Richardson about when he did the first Rage Against the Machine record. And, oh, he, and, and he said the same thing. He was like. I saw Rage play. They were incredible live. There was no way in hell that we were going to like track them one person at a time or any of that. He was like, they had to be live. Like we had to, you know, that's why the first record, they set up a PA and had a, had a crowd come to the studio and, you know, play in front of them. Right. And I, and I think that that's like how they got that magic of, of getting that, that energy there. Right. And I also, you know, and I love the, those Rage records and, you know, one interesting point about those those Rage records is that um, like I play those records to people all the time because, you know, people have all these ideas. Oh, I'm going to overdub this harmony guitars and this synth and I want to do this other guitar part. And, you know, as, as soon as my experience is, as soon as you start stacking so many things, you have to make them all smaller to fit into that space, right? We just have two speakers or two earbuds or whatever these days. So the more you add, the smaller you have to make everything sound. We're going to have to dial down the drums and take all the low end off them and, you know. And so sometimes to make a point, I will play those rage records to people. It's drums, bass, one guitar track and one vocal track. And it sounds absolutely huge, you know. And I play it through the speakers in the studio and people are like, wow, that sounds huge. And I'm like, right, because there's no overdubs or very, very minimal overdubs. There's, there's space for everything, so you can make everything sound huge. And it's delivered with that intensity that just makes it slam, you know. So it does a great record. Yeah, of course. And uh, so, so again, going back to this at the driving stuff, so you were talking about how they were like, you know, jumping around in the studio and that kind of thing. I think there's, there's some artists that like, some artists or even some producers that wouldn't know how to get that level of energy in the studio. You know, they, they, a lot of people still treat the studio as this like formal place of like, we got work to do. And it sounds like you created this environment for them where it was like, it was fun and they were allowed to just let loose and, and perform as if they were doing a show. As far as getting that energy, was that, was that a challenge for you at all? Or were they just like, they're just so natural at doing it that they could do it without a crowd kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, with, with, with them, it was like getting them just to focus enough to get a song done. <laughs> I think if, if, if it was up to them, they probably would have just played the live set front to back and that would have been it. You know, sometimes I had to have them, you know, why don't we, why don't we have another take at the, at the bridge here? You know, I think there, there was a couple of tape edits on those songs. So maybe, uh, I think you, like maybe they did one song and I was like, let's just do one more take and just go even more nuts. And so maybe like Tony would sort of pull out some crazy fill that he'd never done before. The pressure's off. They already got the take. So just do something crazy and go for it. Mm -hmm. And some of those made their way onto the record where it's like, okay, we're going to take that intro, which just sounds incredible. But then after that, maybe it gets a bit too fast and a bit too messy. So we can just take that intro and we'll, we'll use that on the main team. But like I said, with, with most, with most fans, it's the, it's really the opposite. I, I have to create an environment for them where it 
you know, where it can be more live and where, you know, like, like I have to say to people, like, remember, this is a band. This is not, this is not like, you know, we're not sitting here doing three weeks of, of constant microscope overdose. It's, it's a band. It's rock music. It's pop music. It's, you know, it's not a, it's not a production line. Absolutely. So would you record to a click track for most of the stuff you're doing? Or is it like for a project like that, is it just kind of like, just let loose and we hope we get it? it again, it, it totally varies on the band. You know, for me, I, I'll usually either go to a rehearsal or bring a band in and just do a quick pass and see how it feels. You know, and sometimes it feels like tempo's pretty good. Maybe we just need to slow it down a little bit. Um, Sometimes I'll use a click just for the start of the song, just to establish the tempo and then take it out. Sometimes it's like song always starts great, but it's way too fast by the end. So, you know, we're going to do a click track. Sometimes it's, we do a click track, but I, I will program the click track. So, you know, a lot of times choruses sound more exciting if they push ahead just a little bit. But what I don't want is to have, you know, the verse, then the first chorus gets a bit faster, then the second verse is even faster, <laughs> and so on. So I'll program a click. So, okay, our choruses are going to come up a little bit, but then we're going to come back down again for the second verse, and we'll do it like that. So there's a, there is a natural flow to it, but we're actually going to – we want to keep those verses with the space. And, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, so it, it, really, it really depends, I think. It's pretty rare that I just put on a click and say, that's the tempo for the song. You know, as it's almost always there's something where the intro needs to be a bit slower so it can build up or the chorus needs to be a bit faster or the breakdown or the end of the song needs to slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. For, you know, based on, based on how I naturally see the band playing the song. So I don't want to lock them to a, to a click that, that takes away any of those aspects of how they would normally play the song. I just want to sort of rein in the tempo changes a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So at the end of the day, with all of this stuff, when you look back at kind of what we've talked about here about not doing too much with the mix or with the production and all that kind of stuff, how do you ultimately know when you're done with either the production or a mix? Like at what point do you, do you say like, this is, this is perfect the way it is. Well, that's a good question, but it's just sort of a feeling that I get. I, um, it's sort of the same way as doing vocals, you know, like you, um, if somebody's singing, they often the first couple of takes are, are really great, but there's maybe they're still figuring out a few things. And then you get to a point when they continue and then they start second guessing everything. And then it's not so good, you know, and then I usually give them a break and then have them come back in again. And then there's something that happens at that point where I can just feel it. And usually they feel it too. And so, you know, you sort of feel like, yes, that's it. We're really onto something. And that's the, so that's the way I feel about the mix. You know, you're sort of working on it and you're hearing a lot of issues maybe and you, you work out some of those issues try a few things, see what happens. And then once those are out of the way, then I'll sort of reassess it again 
am I getting this this feeling from it? Am I excited by this? And if the answer is no, like, okay, I need to figure out why and go back in there and, and figure that that out. Um, and then at some point, either by design or by accident, I'll reach that point where it suddenly hits me and I feel like, yes, this is it. And that's when I know that I need to stop because just as the same with recording, you, you, you know, you can reach that point then where it's sounding good. Okay. We just need to print it because otherwise I will then fall into that trap of trying to find things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. Love that. I think that's great. I think that's probably a perfect spot to, to wrap up this, this episode. Um, if people want to learn more about you or follow the work that you're doing, like, is there a certain spot that you'd like them to check out? Uh, they can certainly check out my website, alexnewport.com. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you again for, for doing this. Uh, lots of awesome stories. And I, I just love how you approach your, your productions and, um, yeah, especially, you know, talking about things like At The Drive-In or City and Color. Like, I, I love both of those records, or both, both of those projects and all the stuff you've done with them. So it's uh, it's great to get some insight into, you know, the making of those records. So so thank you. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was, it was really fun to chat. And um, let's do it again. We'll, we'll catch up again at some point soon. I'll, I would love that for sure. So that was my interview with Alex Newport, and I really enjoyed that. I really loved hearing the stories of working with At The Drive-In and working with City and Color, um, especially when it comes to the At The Drive-In stuff and how he was talking about how he basically just created this like great environment for them to just perform live and have fun. And and I think that, that really comes across in the records that, that Alex worked on with them because, yeah, they sound so energetic. That band is just, oh, man, they're just... There's just something about that band that is just amazing. And I was saying to Alex after our interview that the first time I saw at the drive-in, they were opening up for Rage Against the Machine. And the sound in the venue was just horrible. And I, from where I was sitting and just the way the sounds were, and from where I was sitting and the way the sound was coming out of the speakers, it was just very, very hard to hear their songs. But I remember saying to my buddy, like, this band is freaking crazy. Like, they're just insane, like, all over the stage and just so exciting. And... Like I, it didn't even matter what their music sounded like to me, you know, like the spectacle of that band was just like, it had me roped in and, um, I immediately went home and got a bunch of their records and just fell in love with them. And yeah, they're just such an awesome band. So it was awesome to hear from Alex and get his experience in working with that band. And yeah, I just thought that Alex covered a lot of really cool stuff in this interview. I loved when he was talking about reverbs and how he purposely looks for reverbs that aren't very pristine and you know like things that it's kind of the opposite of what most people do most people go for that big polished sound and i love that he he kind of looks for a little bit of the edgier stuff and how he doesn't mind the imperfections in recordings and all that stuff i i think that all that is such a interesting approach to production and it's the reason why alex's records have so much energy and character to them and i think that that's what makes special records you don't just want stale records that sound the same every single time so I thought that that was a very fascinating episode. I hope that you did too. And one thing that Alex did bring up in this interview that I think is very relevant to a lot of people listening to this is the idea that with digital recording, it's so easy to want to go deeper and deeper and add more layers. And it's very easy for people to spend so much time thinking about their mixes and overanalyzing and ultimately getting further and further away from a perfect sound that they might have started with. And I think part of the problem isn't just the fact that it's digital recording. I think part of the problem is that for so many people, they don't have a trusted resource to go to to 
validate whether their mix sounds good to begin with or if it needs work. And constantly, I hear from a a lot of my students who say they're working on songs for days, weeks, months, or sometimes even years, and they haven't been able to fully commit to finishing their songs because they're not sure if it's good enough. And they just don't have someone to bounce ideas off of or someone that they can trust. And and they don't want to just ask their friends and family if the song sounds good because they don't trust that that person can give an objective opinion and or give valid feedback on how to actually make the track sound better if it doesn't sound good. And so because of that, that is a reason why I started off a new coaching program called Amplitude, where in this program, you will be able to send me mixes and get honest feedback on how your mixes sound. You know, I'll let you know when your mixes are done and when they need work. And if they do need work, we're going to go into detail about how to actually elevate your track, what things you should try, what things you should be using with EQ, compression, volume, effects, whatever it needs. Or maybe it's something to do with the production or the recording process. Whatever your songs need to take them to that next level, that's what you and I will work directly on to make sure that your mixes sound the way that they need to sound. And so you're proud of them and ready to release them and share them with the world and not feel intimidated or feel afraid that it might not sound that great. We're going to get you the results that you've always wanted with your tracks. So if you're interested in learning more about this program, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. And on that webpage, you're going to find all the details of the program. And I'd love to hop on a call with you to learn more about your personal goals and to learn more about your process to see how I can help. And if it seems like I can genuinely help, then I would love to invite you into the program so that we can work together. I only work with a very small number of people at one time. And the reason for that is that I only want to work with people who I truly believe I can help. And I want to make sure I'm dedicating enough time to make sure that people are seeing results. So if you're interested in learning more about Amplitude, again, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.